Scripture reading today is from John 9, verses 30 through 34. John 9, verses 30 through 34. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him and said to him, You were born entirely in sins, and you're teaching us. And they put him out. Morning, everyone. Welcome. Thank you, Amy and Jonas, for the children's story. 
especially want to thank Gary and Rosie for the special music. You know, of all the famous artists that record Christmas songs, almost nobody does that song, and that is one of my very favorites, and I want to thank you. <clears throat> the message I'm going to share with you this morning is not a new one for those that were members of the Bethel Church, but for those that were at Bethel when I gave this eight or nine years ago, I can also tell you that it's not going to be exactly the same as last time. There's been some changes. <clears throat> I'm drawing from several dis- different sources for this message. It's primarily from John ch- chapter 9 about the man born blind that Jesus healed. I'm also going to be drawing from Luke like uh, was read in the call to worship this morning, and also from the chapter preceding John 9 and John chapter 8. Also going to be sharing a couple of passages from the Desire of Ages on the chapter that talks about this, and one from Steps to Christ. But one other that I want to mention, too, is a former member of this church that those of you that have been here for a long time will remember Dick Patchett used to be a member here, and he gave a sermon on this subject a couple of years ago, and I listened to it, and he had several thoughts that I hadn't given in the first time I gave this, and I have added them to this sermon as well. This story, or this miracle, is found only in the Gospel of John, not in any of the other Gospels. It is also one of the longest stories of healing recorded in any of the Gospels. And it is the only miracle uh, recorded on a person that was born with a malady from birth that Jesus healed. There may have been others, but none of the others were recorded, you know. And before we get into the heart of the message this morning, let's pause for prayer. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning, acknowledging our great need. This morning, we ask for the Holy Spirit to speak to each of our hearts. The words that I share that you've placed on my heart this morning are going to mean different things to different people. And whatever it is the Spirit is impressing on the hearts of each person, may they listen, and may the Spirit draw them closer to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John spent three-plus years with Jesus on this earth. He was one of the earliest of the disciples, one of the first ones called. And from the hundreds of miracles that he witnessed, who knows, maybe even a thousand, he chose just seven to record in his gospel. Out of hundreds and hundreds of miracles, he only recorded seven of them. And of these seven, five are unique to the Gospel of John. None of the other Gospel writers uh, chose five of these. And that is the case with the one that we're going to look at today from John chapter 9. This is unique just to the Gospel of John. Jesus and his disciples were passing through the temple when they noticed a man born blind sitting nearby. And John records one of the few times that the disciples asked Jesus a question. 
So let's take a look at the beginning of that story. Let's turn to John chapter 9. And to begin with, we're going to look at just the first seven verses. John 9, 1 through 7. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. I am, while I am in the world, I am the light of this world. And when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied it, the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. The very idea that God punished people with illness must have puzzled the disciples. Because Jesus, the Son of God, was healing all kinds of people on a daily basis. If God really was punishing people for their sins through sickness, then why was Jesus doing just the opposite every day? And despite the teaching from the book of Job that Satan is the author of sickness and dismay, people still believe that God is responsible for disease. It was all a part of the web of distrust that humanity had fallen into after the fall in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to pause there and we're going to turn to the Desire of Ages, page 471. This is from a chapter that's entitled The Light of Life. And I'm going to read four paragraphs. It was generally believed by the Jews that sin is punished in this life, that every affliction was regarded as a penalty for some wrongdoing, either of the sufferer himself or of his parents. Now it is true that all suffering results from the transgression of God's law, but... This truth had become perverted. Satan, the author of sin and all its results, had led men to look upon disease and death as proceeding from God, as punishment arbitrarily inflicted on account of sin. Hence one upon whom a great affliction or calamity had fallen had the additional burden of being regarded as a great sinner. Thus the way was prepared for the Jews to reject Jesus. He who hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows was looked upon by the Jews as stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And they hid their faces from him. Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. God had given a lesson designed to prevent this. The history of Job had shown that suffering is inflicted by Satan and is overruled by God 
for purposes of mercy. But Israel did not understand the lesson. The same error for which God reproved the friends of Job was repeated by the Jews in their rejection of Christ. The belief of the Jews in regard to the relation of sin and suffering was held by Christ's disciples. While Christ corrected their error, he did not explain the cause of the man's affliction, but he told them what would be the result. And because of it, the work of God would be made manifest. As long as I am the world, in the world, he said, I am the light of the world. Then having anointed the eyes of the blind man, he sent him to wash in the pool of Siloam, and the man's sight was restored. Thus Jesus answered the question of the disciples in a practical way, as he usually answers questions put to him from curiosity. The disciples were not called upon to discuss the question as to who had sinned or who had not sinned, but rather to understand the power and the mercy of God and giving sight to the blind. It was evident that there was no healing virtue in the clay or in the pool where the blind man was sent to wash, but that the virtue was in Christ. What about today? Even today in the 21st century, That question is still being asked, isn't it? It's still with us. The misunderstanding of the responsibility for disease weighs heavily on many people today. I have known people that still ask that question, and I suspect that many of you do too. Why does God inflict disease on people? The teaching from many a pulpit that God punishes people with sickness and that he will ultimately torture sinners for eternity lead many to doubt the goodness of God or even his very existence. No, the question has not gone away. But Luke records another occasion when Jesus addresses man-made as well as natural disasters. Amy read this to you as our call to worship this morning, but let's look at it once again. Luke chapter 13. Verses 1 through 5. Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, were they worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Again, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. In both cases, 
of what we just read here in Luke, Jesus affirms that disasters are not the result of anything that the people had done wrong. He doesn't tell us why these things happened, but the implication is clear that these are not a punishment from God. In the case of the blind man in John 9, Jesus simply said that the blindness was not due to anything the man had done or that his parents had done. And then he recognized it as an opportunity to reveal the power of God. If you're not already still there, turn back to John chapter 9, and we're going to continue reading from where we left off. We'll start with verse 8 and read to 14. The neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, This is he. Still others saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. Therefore they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? And he answered, And the man who was called Jesus made clay, and he anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he now? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees him who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now the Jewish authorities considered healing on the Sabbath to be a violation of their understanding of the Sabbath law. So they brought the man in for questioning. And it talks about that here in John 9 as we continue. Let's continue on with verse 15 and onward. Again, therefore, the Pharisees also were asking him now how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. They said, therefore, to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews, therefore, did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called his parents of the very one who had received his sight. And he questioned the parents, them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be the Christ, that they should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind, 
and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Uh, Unable to control his amazement, the former blind man becomes the teacher, as we'll read in the next few verses, continuing again from verse 25. So a second time they called the man who had been blind. Sorry, that's 24 again. 25. He therefore answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. They said therefore to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he came from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, He could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us? And they put him out. Put him out of the synagogue, as his parents were afraid they would do to them. And they did it to this man. But back in 25 where we started this last section here. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was blind, but now I see. Did you catch what that is, what that means? There it is. The uncontestable power of a personal testimony. Don't ever think that your story is meaningless or without value or that a lack of education or training invalidates what you have to say. God was at work using a blind beggar that was assumed to be a great sinner. And yet, the man spoke with clarity and power simply by telling others what God had done for him. So, why did Jesus heal the blind man? Did the man just happen to be in the right place at the right time? And why did John decide to include it in his gospel, just one of seven miracles that he included in his gospel? As I said earlier, he had hundreds and hundreds of miracles to choose from. Clearly, Jesus wanted to increase the faith of his disciples and to clear up old misunderstandings about God 
and his relationship with illness. Throughout his gospel, John has also made it clear that the Pharisees had consistently rejected the message and the evidence that Jesus had given about himself. Jesus healed the man to give another piece of evidence to the Pharisees hoping to reach them. Remember back in verse 14 that we read earlier, it said that this miracle happened on the Sabbath. Jesus knew that it was the Sabbath, and he knew that a Sabbath miracle would get the attention of the religious leaders. But to better understand why Jesus healed this man and why John told this story when he told so few other stories, we need to go back and get some context from the previous chapter in chapter 8 of John. So turn back to chapter 8 with me and John. And this is kind of a long chapter. Um, And it's a long conversation. I'm not going to take the time to read it all this morning, but I'm going to pick a few highlights to illustrate. Let's start in verse 12. John 8, verse 12. Again, therefore Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So there, I think, is a pretty obvious connection with chapter 9. Light, darkness, blindness. Jesus went on to say that he came to bring light and truth to the world, to set man free from the bondage of sin and darkness and misapprehension of God. The implication was that the Jews were in bondage or slavery, and this incensed them. They immediately claimed that they were sons of Abraham and were not in bondage to anyone. Jesus explained that he meant spiritual bondage to sin. He unveiled the secrets of their hearts, telling them they were plotting his death, something that in itself disqualified them from being spiritual sons of Abraham. The conversation was getting heated. And the Jews responded by calling Jesus, get this, a demon-possessed Samaritan. says it in verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and a demon? In the minds of the Pharisees, they could not have possibly called him anything worse. A demon-possessed Samaritan. Well, Jesus did not let that go unanswered. No, in verse 49 he says, I have no demon. I honor my father, and you dishonor me. In verse 51 it says, I am telling the truth. Whoever obeys my teaching will never die. Now, this was not the first time that Jesus had said that his followers would never die. He was speaking spiritually, of course, something that he often did. But the Pharisees did not understand. Drop down to verse 52. They answered and said to him, You are not also 
Well, I'm sorry, that was the wrong verse. Verse 51. I see, I'm in the wrong chapter. We'll get this right yet. (laughs) Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Assuredly, you do have a demon, they responded. Abraham and the prophets died, but you say the teaching is greater than theirs, that your um, followers will never die. Do you really claim to be greater than Abraham? Who do you think you are? And that is the question, isn't it? The guide to understanding which miracles that John chose to write about. Who is Jesus? And is he greater than Abraham and all the Old Testament heroes? In the verse that we just read, where Jesus says, I tell you before Abraham was, I am. Now Jesus wasn't just saying that he was alive before Abraham. That would have been a pretty large claim in itself, wouldn't it? That he was alive before Abraham. But that's not what he was really saying. But the actual words Jesus used here is the I am phrase, as we know it in the Old Testament. The name for God himself, Yahweh. And using this name, Jesus was openly claiming to be the God of the Old Testament the creator himself. And the Jewish people recognized it instantly. Now the punishment for blasphemy, which they considered this to be, claiming to be God, was death by stoning. So they began to pick up stones to throw at him. They had challenged his authority They had called him a demon-possessed Samaritan. And on the heels of this conversation, John records the story of the healing of the blind man, something never recorded previously in the history of mankind. So let's pause for a moment and ask a question. How does God respond to controversy? Does he simply make claims? Does he simply say, I expect you to believe me based on my claims alone? Does he use an overwhelming display of power? He could, of course. And he had that kind of power, and he used it many times in the Old Testament when trying to get the attention of a group of unruly, rebellious people. He needed somehow to get their attention long enough to get them to listen. So yes, when they needed it, God ran the risk of using his power. And it is a risk. It does one thing, it gets their attention, 
but does it win their hearts? A forced or coerced obedience, an unwilling confession means nothing to God. Only allegiance that is freely given, that stems from a heart of gratitude, is acceptable to him. And so then after this story of chapter 8 of John, Jesus quietly slips away. But he didn't leave them without evidence. God works by giving us evidence. He doesn't make empty claims. When his authority is challenged, he responds by giving evidence. Now, Jesus had already read the murderous hearts of the Pharisees. And that in itself should have been enough evidence to them that he could read their minds. But in healing the blind man, something never done before, Jesus gave more evidence of his divinity. And for those willing to listen, willing to see, to evaluate the evidence, it was more than enough. It was Jesus' way of dealing with controversy and of answering their question. And what was their question again? Are you greater than Abraham? The Jews made the claim. Um, I'm sorry. But claiming are only words, you know. Claims prove nothing by themselves. But by the Jews' own system of thought, God would not use a sinner to heal a blind man. Therefore, based on the evidence that he gave them, Jesus must be who he claimed to be. There is a quote that I love in Steps to Christ that I want to share with you this morning. It comes from the chapter entitled, What to Do with Doubt. And it's just one paragraph that I'm going to read that's on page 105. It's the second paragraph. And it says this, God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason. And this testimony is abundant. Yet, God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest upon evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have opportunity, while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence on which to rest their faith. I hope that resonated with you. God never asks us to believe without evidence. He appeals to our reason. 
And this testimony is abundant. Our reason. God wants things to make sense to us. Now think about how religion has made light of evidence through the years. How often have you heard it said, as we heard from that fabled schoolboy, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Some of the older ones probably have heard that. Some of you may not. But think about how religion has encouraged blind faith. As if God had never given us any evidence. God values our minds, our thinking, our ability to reason. We are made in the image of God with power to think and to do and to evaluate evidence and to make decisions based on the evidence. God does not want blind obedience. He wants us to study the evidence and then to come into agreement with him based on that evidence. He wants to win our trust. He brings us back to faith through evidence that he has given us. Jesus closed the story by noting that he had come into the world to help blind people see and also so that those who do see may become blind. Let's read about it in the last few verses of chapter 9 that we haven't read yet, starting with verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things, and they said to him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. What did Jesus mean? Does God want people to become blind? Encounters with Jesus were often multidimensional. Jesus used language to direct our attention to deeper meanings. He would move freely from a literal understanding to a spiritual understanding, from a horizontal earthly meaning to a vertical spiritual one. He would speak of the necessity of being born again. He would speak of himself as being the living water and the bread of life 
Some of these are tough sentences, statements, and they call for interpretation. They are spiritual statements. So Jesus closed the story by noting that he had come to make seeing people blind. Truth does that, you know. Truth. It divides people into two groups. Those that trust God and accept the evidence that Jesus came to give and those that do not. No, Jesus isn't interested in making people blind, but he clearly came to bring us truth. The truth about his father, specifically that God is not the kind of person slash God that Satan has made him out to be. Unforgiving and severe. God is not the author of disease and death or unhappiness and sorrow. He is rather the very source of life, the very source of love and truth, and the one who desires above all else to heal us, to save us, to make us well again. In closing this morning, I'd like to do a couple of things. One, I want to share another few paragraphs that end the same chapter in the Desire of Ages that I read from earlier, and then I'll have just a few short comments after that. The last page of the chapter, The Light of Life, page 475, Desire of Ages. To the Savior's question, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? The blind man replied and asked, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. The man cast himself at the Savior's feet in worship. Not only had his natural sight been restored, but the eyes of his understanding had been opened. Christ had revealed to his soul, and he received him as the scent of God. A group of Pharisees had gathered near, and the sight of them brought to mind of Jesus the contrast ever manifest in the effect of his words and works. Another way of saying the effect of truth. Truth does two things. It either opens your eyes and you accept it, or you reject it, and it closes your eyes. You are in darkness. Then he said, For judgment I came into this world that they which see, see not, might see, and they which see might become blind. Christ had come to open blind eyes, to give light to them that sit in darkness. He had declared himself to be the light of the world, and the miracle just performed was an attestation of his mission. The people who beheld the Savior at this advent were favored with a fuller manifestation of the divine presence than the world had ever before enjoyed. The knowledge of God was revealed more perfectly. But in this very revelation, judgment was passing upon men. 
Their characters were tested, their destiny determined. The same manifestation of divine power that had given the blind man both natural and spiritual sight had left the Pharisees in yet deeper darkness. Some of his hearers, feeling that Jesus' words applied to them, inquired, Are we blind also? And Jesus answered, If you were blind, you would have no sin. If God made it impossible for you to see the truth, your ignorance would involve no guilt. But now ye say, We see. You believe yourselves able to see and reject the means through which alone you could receive sight. To all who realize their need, Christ came with infinite help. But the Pharisees would confess no need. They refused to come to Christ, and hence they were left in blindness, a blindness for which they were themselves guilty. Jesus said, your sin remaineth. Or like I entitled the sermon today, a blindness that cannot be healed is a blindness that we refuse to accept. You know, if we refuse truth, it causes blindness. So what about you? <clears throat> Have you taken a position in this great controversy between God and Satan? Between good and evil, have you been tempted to believe the lies about God started by Satan in the Garden of Eden? That God is an untrustworthy liar. For that is the essence of what Satan is saying. If you have been tempted to believe that, I would like to invite you this morning to reconsider the evidence brought before us by Jesus himself. The whole Bible is a record of God's faithfulness in dealing with rebellious people under many difficult circumstances. But God never gave up on them. God has especially revealed himself in Jesus. And based on his testimony, we can confidently say, yes, God is abundantly worthy of our trust. Our closing song today is going to be a recording by a, a group called the Booth Brothers, and it is based on this parable on John 9, and it's called, He Saw It All, speaking to the blind man after he was healed. I was working in town one afternoon Attending some business affairs I heard a commotion a couple streets over I wondered what's happening there A young man was running from in that direction And stopped just to catch his breath I asked him to please tell me what was the hurry He smiled up at me and he said I was trying to catch the crippled man Did he run past? 
just this way He was rushing home to tell everyone what Jesus did today And the mute man was telling myself and the deaf girl he's leaving to answer God's call It's hard to believe, but if you don't trust me Ask the blind man, he saw it all Ask the blind man, he saw it all That's what the Lord Jesus can do, folks My friend, if the troubles and burdens you carry Are heavy and dragging you down You've tried everything you can possibly think of there's no relief to be found That very same Jesus that altered the future Of a blind man, the deaf and the lame Is still reaching out in your hour of trouble One touch and you're never the same You'll be trying to catch the crippled man in this way he was rushing home to tell everyone what Jesus did today and the mute man was telling myself and the deaf girl he's leaving to answer God's call it's hard to believe but if you don't trust me ask the blind man he saw it all Father in heaven, this morning we ask you to open our blind eyes. It's so easy to point the finger at the Pharisees, but we all have our blind spots. And we ask that you will continue to reveal evidence to us in those areas that we will see the truth. We will hear your voice. And we will be convinced to follow you wherever you could take us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.